If you love Push Black's Black History Year, you'll love our newest podcast called Two Minute Black History. In only two minutes, you'll hear little known stories about our people and reclaim the knowledge we need to take action and advance our community. To move towards the future, you've got to look to the past. Learn the history you didn't get in school. Tune in to Two Minute Black History every Tuesday through Friday, right on the Black History Year feed and wherever you listen to podcasts. Savages, slaves, mammies, and maids. These are the roles black actors have played in films that have saturated Hollywood for decades. But the beauty of blackness and breadth of black life stretch far beyond these limiting depictions. This is why black media matters. When we tell our own stories, we challenge the stigmas and stereotypes that have been perpetuated for too long. We shift the ways we see ourselves. We tell the truth of who we are and expand the possibilities for what can be. This is Jay from Push Black and you're listening to Black History Year. In the early 20th century, the first great black filmmaker, Oscar Micheaux, wrote, produced, cast, and directed feature films that highlighted our lives in beautiful sepia tones and provided powerful social commentary. Then came the 70s revolution of urban dramas and comedies which surged as the launch pad for gritty hip-hop action pieces and soulful family romance films of the 80s and 90s. Today, the black experience is the face of billion-dollar movie franchises and multiple award-winning and groundbreaking series. Black people all around the globe are claiming the rights to our culture and our heritage and streaming our stories across the planet. Is this a black renaissance or is it just dues being paid? Our guest today can speak to that. Maori Holmes is the founder and creative director of the Black Star Film Festival. Black Star creates the spaces and resources needed to uplift the work of black artists working outside of the confines of genre. They elevate artists who are overlooked invisibilized or misunderstood and celebrate the wide spectrum of aesthetics, storytelling, and experiences that they bring. So her insight is going to make for a great conversation. But first, the story of one woman's refusal to have her identity mandated by Hollywood and the change it inspired. The Tragic Mulatto was a very popular film and literature trope during the 19th and 20th centuries. Countless stories revolved around a mixed-race character who was sad and enraged that they didn't fit perfectly into the white world. Freddie Washington, an early Hollywood actress, could have fit perfectly. She was mixed, light-skinned, and past. Her early roles played on these stereotypes, including her best-known role in the classic 1934 movie Imitation of Life. 
but she refused to be boxed in. After being typecast in similar roles time after time, she was done. She refused to keep contributing to this problematic narrative and was tired of Hollywood's lack of diversity. So she made some dramatic moves. She got involved with the Harlem Renaissance and the early civil rights movement and helped co-found the Negro Actors Guild of America, her first steps in changing the system. The Guild was powerful in speaking out against the lack of compelling black roles in Hollywood and how damaging racist stereotypes could be. Washington's experience navigating that issue empowered the organization with authority in its critiques. Hollywood still has a long way to go when it comes to representation, but the Guild was a powerful start. Freddie Washington showed that we don't have to contain our blackness or conform to white perceptions of us to be successful. Maori, what does black liberation look like to you? Um, that's an interesting question. I was just listening to another podcast yesterday that was thinking about uh, Robin D.G. Kelly and Freedom Dreams and thinking about the difference between emancipation and freedom. And I feel like liberation is also somewhere on that spectrum between those things. And for me, I think Black liberation is the ability for Black people worldwide to be able to have an existence that is not defined by outward forces or external forces that isn't reflecting colonialism, isn't reflecting racism, that is self-determined and enables freedom of movement, uh, freedom to um, make decisions that will benefit one's life and family and well-being that are resourced and Whole is the word that comes up that feels a little vague, but just having the capacity to do those things without a kind of external gaze or consideration. I think that external gaze part is is huge. Like most of us don't know what life looks like outside of that. So even if we imagine liberation, unfortunately, it's often still in the context of that. So I appreciate that. To dig deeper, tell me about how your work contributes to getting us closer to that vision of Black liberation that you share? <laughs> well, I, I hope that my work is helping to shift how we see ourselves. I really believe that the mediated image really impacts how we think about ourselves, how we view ourselves, what decisions we make about our families, how we choose to party, how we choose to celebrate, how we choose to love and for so long, the images that we were given were not uh, diverse. They were not inclusive. They were not supportive of uh, what we need for well-being. And so I'm really interested in making space for different representation. I'm interested in making space for more radical representation. And so I hope that by making space for those things to add to what is in the mainstream, not everything in the mainstream is bad, but to add more to that, um, I hope that I'm, I'm adding to the possibilities of liberation because you can't have it if you can't imagine it. So this idea that 
for so long, our images have been controlled by those that are outside of our communities and probably definitely seek to serve their interests over our interests. I think that's something that I think about constantly. I'm curious if you could take us back to your experience with media. How have you seen media shape you over the years and your perception of yourself and your community? (laughs) Um, I'm laughing because just last night I participated in a film screening of a film I made 17 years ago. And watching that film and this documentation of the early 2000s, uh, it was my film and a film by the uh, another artist named Byron Hurt. Uh, my film came out in 2005. His film came out in 2006, and uh, it was they were both looking at hip hop in the U.S. And uh, it's wild to think about so many of the images of music videos, and uh, I think about the different points in my life that have been shaped by television programs, you know, the Cosby show had a a deep impact on me and what I expected my future family to look like. It sent me to an HBCU, um, you know, through a different world. And I think about, I would just watch music videos for hours and hours and hours. And I think about my visual references as a maker and later on the ways in which I wanted to adorn myself (laughs) <laughs> you know, or even the, the the religions I was interested in based on sort of hip hop music videos and the content therein. And also, you know, I think even moving a little bit forward, I think all of us changed our expectations of, you know, sort of grandeur based on, I, th- I really think about the early to mid 90s and the sort of Diddy era and the just explosion in references to many, many things that shifted what people's expectations were for the ways in which they could enjoy themselves. And maybe because I was in college at that time, I just remember having like a very visceral impact (laughs) with like parties completely changed to look like these settings. And I think they continue to do that. But those are the things that come to mind immediately for me. Um, But I continue to be impacted by things that I watch um, films that have come through Black Star, television that I'm watching on a weekly basis, just always sort of finding things and responding to them, um, relating, sometimes not relating. Are there any ideas that picked up through media uh, in the past that have either, you've like, okay, I'm, I'm keeping this with me or I, I got to get rid of that? I grew up with just my mother and definitely saw the Huxtables and thought about what I, I thought a family should look like and felt shame about the one that I had um, and also a deep longing for one that I wanted based on this seven years, I think it was seven seasons of watching this family navigate the world and also what I thought a partnership looked like and you know what the status should be of the people in that partnership in terms of professional life and uh you know, having a bunch of kids, like all of that is is so much of that comes from watching that show and loving that show. Um, and similarly, um, I don't think I would have attended Howard if it hadn't been for a different world. My family's from California. And I did, my grandfather did go to Tuskegee, um, but my parents didn't. And so it wasn't like HBCUs were a conversation in my household. 
Um, but I was very, very committed <laughs> and interested in it in large part due to that show. I mean, there was also a lot of talk in the 90s. You know, we had the T-shirts about the HBCUs and all of that. But I mean, I think that even came from that as well. So I think the trajectory of my life was shaped by expectations made um, based on media that was informing to me, media that I was informed by. Um, but I also think some of the things that came up last night at this film screening, um, and I don't feel this way today, but I remember early on thinking about the appearance of women in music videos, um, in hip hop music videos, and you know maybe rock to some extent as well, and trying not to look like that, and having a real judgment around not appearing to be someone who would be disrespected before I sort of changed my mind. I mean, now I feel like you can, I mean, you'll be disrespected no matter what you're wearing, but I have less judgment around that. But I think um, earlier on when I was younger, being really shaped by what I saw as a real line between acceptability, I would say, or not acceptability, I guess, respectability um, with regard to appearance. It's amazing how certain images uh, shape our perception and our actions. A lot of times it's easy to think that, uh, at least to the casual consumer, that media exists in a vacuum and it's just something we watch or consume for entertainment but aren't really aware of how much it affects the choices that we we make. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and some of those choices you referred to in terms of family and college um, is interesting because those are images that were curated, intentionally put into the airwaves for us to to consume as black folks. They were curated. So how do you view your role um, as a cur- curator uh, when it comes to selecting certain types of images over others, perhaps? I definitely think critically um, and take that role seriously and um, have programmed things uh, that might not be my taste, my personal taste, but they're things that I think the public needs to see. For instance, you know, selecting uh, a romantic comedy that has a dark-skinned woman with dreads as the center of the film because that's not something we see enough, right? So making intentional decisions around something as simple as that or more complicated, making sure that a film about Um, a trans activist who died makes it into the festival, even if the film isn't necessarily technically appealing. Um, But uh, at the time, I I think when I'm thinking about this one film in particular, it was urgent and it was rare. Um, And so it was important to include it in the program so that people would be aware of this issue. And I've definitely done that many times, like thought about the urgency of a particular political issue um, or think about things from an aesthetic issue. Um, And it's always a balance between those things because of the ways in which we take in media. So you're speaking a lot about um, diverse representation, even within our community, which is very powerful. And looking broadly, right, there has been for years now conversations around representation. When it comes to representation, what are the challenges and 
opportunities, let's say, that exist when it comes to this idea of representation in, let's let's say, Hollywood specifically? That's a difficult one because I think depending on who you are and your position, for some Black people, we have not seen enough representation and so we still crave it um, no matter its form. And some other people... Um, perhaps more exposed or exposed to uh, more kinds of of media are interested in going beyond representation. Um, I do think um, of marginalized people in this country, there's more opportunities for representation of Black people than other groups. And so one of the things that I've been interested in with the work that I do is going beyond representation. I'm interested in a diversity of imagery. I'm interested in a kind of technical excellence. I'm interested in social justice as a political framework. I'm interested in showing us in a global context, not only thinking about ourselves in the US, but thinking about ourselves as Black people in the diaspora in a global framework. And I'm also really interested in breaking the form of film anyway, (laughs) you know, like uh, something we talk about a lot at Black Star is the ways in which Black people broke jazz, (laughs) you know, in a good way, right? Like we have mastered that and remixed it and, you know, really taken the form to somewhere no people never even thought was possible. We haven't done that with film, you know? We've done it with sports, right? Particularly like basketball, or you can see it in fashion and you can see it in hair and you can see it with food. There's so many things in our culture where we have just really, really experimented and innovated. And we have a lot of room to grow in the film and television space. So um, I'm interested in that stuff. And so for me, it's not enough that a black person is on the screen. Um, I'm One, I'm really invested in black people behind the screen. So our festival focuses on black and brown directors, period. It's not about necessarily who's on the screen. It's about who's behind it. Even better would be also black and brown writers, black and brown producers, et cetera. Um, And, you know, we can't even get started at the funding. (laughs) That's like a whole nother level. But just taking the directors as the main architect of the work, um, being really, really crucially interested in that because to me, that is the work, is the director's vision. And I think for so long, uh, we've been really um, satisfied with having Black people on screen. And that is not enough because those Black people could be on screen mimicking whiteness. They could be on screen through a white lens. And if it's a white director or a white writer, et cetera, um, they could also be perpetuating stereotypes. They could be, you know, creating harm. And so for me, representation in our case is not enough. What are some of the best examples of how you've seen Black creators express self-determination through the work that they're putting out? Well, I think uh, Black artists have to be clear about why they're making work. If it is to make money, then that is going to have certain considerations. And if it is to move us along artistically, then that's going to have another set of considerations. 
sometimes they get to meet, <laughs> you know, um, but often they don't. And so I think being really clear about why one is working in the field is important. And I only say that because it might be important to gain power or influence and perhaps money along the way. And you might work on projects you're not invested in, or you may accept aesthetic or other kinds of decisions that are not of personal interest to you, but they are a way to get the job and get the bag, right? If you are thinking sort of art first, those concerns are less important and the art is most important, right? And so you will have to make sacrifices often um, and be careful about the partnerships that you make to make the product. What's really, really challenging, and I don't think people appreciate it enough, is how uh, expensive it is to make film and television at the level at which we're all expecting. And so once things involve millions and millions of dollars, there's going to be hands in the pot. <laughs> you know, there are studios in the pot. There are global heads of studios in the pot. And it changes what you're able to do. And so what's really brilliant about this moment is the kind of work that people make from their phones for TikTok, right? And that is something for free, <laughs> right? And many people practice there. Many people are happy for it just to be there. But that's really different than a Black Panther which requires several years and you know hundreds of millions of dollars to execute. And so those are just different playing grounds and you know I think they both need to exist and we need we need all of that representation and all of those experiences. One of my favorite quotes uh, from black cinema Hollywood Shuffle, right? Mm. There's always work at the post office. <laughs> uh, I'm very critical of roles that black actors take and some choices that they make. And then they say, well, you know, it's hard to get work out here. We got to get some work. But then I always refer back to that line. There's always work at the post office. So uh, what are your thoughts on on that quote specifically and that sort of paradox of like trying to be a working actor or creator? But, you know, there's difficult choices that have to be made sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think for actors, it's even more difficult than for directors because you're not always in charge of the product that you're participating in. And so you have less agency at the the shaping of the roles, right? So you're auditioning for things that are available. And oftentimes for Black people, they are not um, always good ones, <laughs> you know, like just sort of a basic thing. Um, and I think, yes, if it is just about m making money, there is always a job at the post office. But in reality, if you're not working, then people won't call on you, right? And when you go to the next audition, the question will be, well, where have you been? And you can't say I was at the post office, right? <laughs> like you're supposed to have been training and you know out there and getting cast and things, right? Um, the other thing that any artist has to do, and this is music, you know, food, like everything that we think of, you have to practice. So you could be at the post office, but you better be in community theater in the evening. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you have to keep sort of working your muscle. And so um, I think some actors choose to practice doing maybe roles that aren't the most interesting to them. But then there are also other actors. I think about Mahershala Ali as an example of someone who has been just exceptionally disciplined at the ways in which he'll appear on camera, the kinds of roles that he will take, the ones he won't, <laughs> you know, 
Um, and he's definitely a model, I think, for someone who, um, as far as I know, is not sort of to the manner born. You know, he's not some rich person, but was able to set that kind of internal um, guidepost for himself of how he wanted to be presented and move forward. Everyone isn't um, that principled, right? And that's just the reality of our society. But I, I definitely look at his example. But I also understand the other kinds of examples, and I don't necessarily want to call anyone out. But, um, you know, I watch a lot of nonsense, right? Like just as a break. Yeah. <laughs> Someone has to work in that. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm not mad at people who choose to participate in those projects as workers either, because they do bring people some kind of joy. I hear that. There's always been this conversation around positive Black images, which I think also requires some more unpacking and nuance. I'm not sure if that's the end-all, be-all, in this way that some people say, hey, we need more positive Black images, uh, our images of Black folks in the media. I'm curious about your thoughts around that concept. Yeah, I think... Um focusing only on positive black images is being stuck in a kind of respectability politics that is a reaction to white supremacy. And that is not of interest to me right now. I can understand a hundred years ago why people felt that might be important. Um, but I think for our current moment, it is not interesting to me. It is, it is not whole. It is still a stereotype. It is lacking in um, nuance, right? And it isn't a fair representation because it isn't seeing our humanity. And that is what art is supposed to do. It is supposed to represent us as human. And so we can't be perfect. That is not human, right? And so characters that are flawed, that are layered, that are complicated, are more like what hum human life is like. And so I'm more interested in that than in flat, caricature um, in either direction, positive or negative. For sure. I can agree with that. And I, I personally think it comes down to who's who's telling the story too, because it's, you know, um, there are some very popular shows out there that I, uh, I'd say aren't necessarily positive images, but they may be somebody's reality, but I don't think they come from our community. Uh, there's, there's a certain way to do it where you can tell there's a a hand in it that is authentic and is trying to say something, but um, sometimes it's you know folks outside our community trying to make money from it. You mentioned perhaps the need for positive images maybe a hundred years ago being more relevant than today in a sense. What type of cues do you take from history when it comes to black cinema? Um, Black cinematic history um, in particular. That's a work in progress. I mean, I feel like there's so much to learn still about our participation in the form. And even though I, I majored in history and I feel like I've been thinking about this for a long time, I every week am learning. <laughs> um, I think more recently in doing the work that I've come to do as a maker and also the festival, I'm definitely thinking about how 
who came before us and what their attempts were and how we can keep them front of mind so that we're not unnecessarily repeating things, but also so that we're not dropping so many of the gems that they set up for us. I think there's so much to learn from the Black arts movement, just writ large. Um, and filmmaking at that time and theater at that time is really, really critical. And sometimes I'm worried that we've dropped it. You know, we think about these moments, these so-called Black renaissances, and they always sort of drop off and forget the people that were there just 20 years prior. And so I think about the kind of work that was made in, say, the L.A. Rebellion or the work that's made even in the beginning of the Black exploitation era. Or um, I was watching the documentary on Sidney Poitier the other day and thinking about some of the films that he made when he was director we don't know enough about that work and aren't referencing it in our own work. You know, we're kind of like self-reflexive. People are like Solange, <laughs> you know, and I'm not knocking Solange, but who are her influences, right? I was talking with some of my staff, most of whom are much younger than me, um, about film from the 90s, and they don't know it. Yeah. You know? People haven't seen Hollywood Shuffle. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're referencing that. That film is incredibly important and so many people haven't seen it now, you know. For sure. And I think that there's been some interesting things done, as you mentioned, that could be uh, could be referenced, especially to your the points you raised about uh, the different aesthetic styles that we could um, create or build on. I think of conversations that I've had over the years with um colleague of mine so we're both filmmakers as well and he actually had a film in black star a filmmaker named darren wallace um i think his film savage vs. the void was in there a couple years ago and we've been talking about this idea of a black cinematic vernacular which is what you're talking about like what are the ways that we can look at the work we've done in other art forms and in this art form too and use our cultural influences to create something that is breaking the mold of of Hollywood. And I think it does, a big part of that is looking at history, looking at those who came before us and attempted to do something that may have been outside of the system. I'm asking you a question related to one of my least favorite questions. As a filmmaker, people ask me, hey, what's your favorite film? I hate that question. All right. Um, do you have a favorite film? And if so, what is it? Or even more interesting to me, um, is there a black film that you would say is the most important film um, when it comes to black culture? Yeah, that's a terrible question. <laughs> <laughs> and, and nearly impossible to answer because I think it just sort of depends on one's own interest and, you know, position. I'll say a lightning rod film for me that I'm always returning to and just always thinking about and taught me so much. It like broke my brain in terms of shifting how I think about what film can do. And that's Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash. It's a film that took her 10 years to finish. So I think that's also really important to say, um, because even though it comes out in 91, so much of the 80s is also present in the making of that. But I also feel like we can't ignore the impact of Spike Lee and uh, particularly his early work. And I think about Do the Right Thing or She's Gotta Have It and the ways in which um, just one, from a production standpoint, the people he employed became the industry, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and that was really, really critical and important. I don't think this is a good film, 
but um, the technique in it continues to inspire us. And that's belly, right? Mm. Um, so much of that, uh, particularly the cinematography, has shaped how we see things and how we make work, right? Like everybody now has a club scene that is either flooded mm. in red or flooded in blue. And we mm. didn't have that before Belly. Um, I think about, you know, Killer of Sheep, even though many, many people haven't seen it, they are referencing Khalil Joseph and Khalil is referencing that, right? right? Um, and so I think that's... That's one of my personal favorites, for sure, Killer Sheep. Yeah, it's really important. But also, because Black people have not been making work for as long as the... the and, and not been at a making it at a high level for the as long as we've had cinema, we also can't limit ourselves to what we've made, to how we see, right? I think about the references um, that Barry Jenkins talks about in Moonlight, um, and just one, for instance, being Wong Kar Wai, right? Thinking about his work, <laughs> Wong Kar Wai's work, and that the impacts of that in the mood for love on um, Barry Jenkins' um, eye, but also the number of Iranian directors and, of course, you know, white European directors and, and American, white American directors and the ways in which we see work. So we have to sort of real have a real sense of film history broadly, not just our participation in it, to really, really understand the ways in which the medium is being molded. But I think there's so many touch points for our own participation through performance or through directing or cinematography that um, we could go on for days. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's definitely not sure. one film, for sure. Uh, for sure. I appreciate you taking a stab at that one. So as we get closer to time, um, looking to the future, the work that you and you know others uh, in your, your sphere are doing, when we take the power to curate, control, the images for us and by us um, at scale, what happens then? Gosh, I mean, that's, uh, I, I think I'm a little cynical. <laughs> and so I'm trying to imagine that happening and not being co-opted. I mean, it could just be transformative if we were, putting forth images of like, let's just start with black love, right? And putting forth images of cohesion. I was watching Yvonne Orji's HBO special and she's, you know, child of immigrants from Nigeria. Her parents were together and she talks about how her brother it thinks he's Tupac. <laughs> you know, when he talks about this, you know, being this orphan. And it's because it's a seductive imagery, right? That has been put forth in the mainstream media. And so as much as I was seduced by the Huxtables, there are many people who were seduced by so-called gangster rap, right? I mean, I, I say that in huge air quotes, but thinking about that imagery of like, you know, a thug or whatever Tupac represents, um, that someone would rewrite their actual life to be more like that. So if we had control and could present more complicated images um, or more of a diversity of images that people wouldn't have to choose from these really tired, um, fantastic tropes. They're fantastic, you know, that you have this kind of myth of someone like a Tupac or a myth of, um, you know, I think even about Little Kim as a figure, right? Like she was so extreme because that was the, 
that was what made it compelling rather than someone with more nuance and more um, interiority being expressed. You just described what's possible uh, when we are able to create more complicated images. Um, in one minute, could you describe how we, <laughs> how we obtain the power to do that? I think more of us need to be invested in the full industry of film and television making beyond directors and actors. We need people to consider editing. We need people to consider composing. We need people to consider being executives and learning the business of it. And so I think about people sort of mastering all of the the spaces that make up the industry in order for us to create a separate one. That would be my one minute answer. I also think there's something about being really, really clear about purpose and always coming back to that purpose because I think it's really easy to get lost in the glamour of the industry if you're not clear about why you're in it. One final quick one, may or may not keep this one, but uh, Spook Who Set By The Door, underrated or overrated? Underrated. Thank you. All right. That's all we need to hear. <laughs> all right. Maori, appreciate you joining us on Black History Year today. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Maori Holmes of the Black Star Film Festival and Black Star Projects. To learn more about the festival and its programming, visit blackstarfest.org. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, A people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but really, everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Our team includes Tarek Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, and Lily Workna. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Michael L. Sessa for Lemon House and Julian Walker for Push Black. Peace. Peace.